Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Hey, I want to start this morning with a question, and the, the, the question is this, do you, do you know what this is, this, this fundamental attribution error? I had never really heard of that before. Um, fundamental attribution error is actually a cognitive bias, and it is something that all of us have the potential to get sucked into, especially during something like an, an election cycle. It's very easy to get sucked into fundamental attribution error. This bias causes us to attribute people's behavior to their character, okay? We attribute behavior to their character. Well, the reason that they act that way is because that's who she really is on the inside. Um, the reason she behaves that way is because, um, you know, that's really what's going on on the inside. And, and if you're like me, I'll bet what you're thinking about right now is, well, of course, Brett, what's on the inside makes its way out. I mean, didn't Jesus say that? What's on the inside makes its way out. Um, but here's the problem with that. Um, you think that when it's somebody else, but you don't think that when it's you. Okay. So it, it kind of goes like that, like this. Uh, here, here's what I mean. There's a guy at work and he's late. He's late. Well, you know why he's late. He's late because he's unorganized and he's irresponsible and he just won't get himself out of bed. That's why he's late. He's late because he just doesn't care. He's late because he can't organize himself and he's just, he's just a slouch. That's the problem. And then you're late. But you're not late because you're an, a slouch or because you're irresponsible or because you don't care or because your mama didn't raise you right or any of those reasons. When you look into the mirror, you, that's not what you see. When you look into the mirror, you're late because you were helping your kids get ready for school. You're late because you had to take a phone call from a friend where they really needed you and they needed your counsel or whatever, so you took the phone call and it made you late for work. Well, I'm just late because, you know, it's not because I'm unorganized, Brett. I mean, I'm actually, I'm late because I'm very organized because I was organizing my kids and I was organizing my friend and I was organizing all these people. See, fundamental attribution error happens when we assume that a person's actions shows what kind of person they are rather than environmental factors. Social and environmental factors can play a big part in that, but we don't always see that. So when it comes to politics, this is what it sounds like. Well, those corrupt Democrats, you know they're all corrupt. They're just corrupt. That's what's wrong. They're corrupt. I mean, it's the, the, every one of them I've ever met was corrupt. And then on the other side, you hear it like this. Well, those daggone Republicans, they're harsh. They don't love anybody. They don't care about anybody. You know why they believe what they believe, because they don't love anybody. They're just harsh. They're just mean. They're heartless. I know them. And on one side, they're corrupt, and on the other side, they're heartless, and they're corrupt, and they're heartless, and we just know that's why they are the way they are. No, you've been sucked into a cognitive bias when you start talking like that. Democrats are socialists. We all know that. All the Democrats are socialists. I know them. That's what, that's what they are. They're socialists. Well, Republicans, Republicans are racist. If you've ever talked to one, you know that Republicans are racist. No. Now listen to me, and you may not like this. Mature, emotionally intelligent, curious, empathetic people do not fall for that stuff. Emotionally mature people do not get sucked into assuming that an entire group of people is a certain way. They just don't, they don't fall into that. You, you, you withhold some judgment. You, you show some tolerance. You, 
you, you think things through a little bit and you say, okay, um, maybe there's something I don't know. But political rhetoric feeds this and it grabs us by the nose and it leads us into believing and saying all kinds of silliness, things that just are not true. And you and I are better than that. We, we're better than that, and we should not fall into those kind of traps. So let's, let's just don't do that anymore, okay? Let's just resolve that we're not going to fall into the trap of assuming that everybody on a certain side thinks and believes everything the exact same way, and if they're different than us, then it just must mean that they're stupid or something. No, let's don't, let's don't do that. In fact, you can even start to call people out on your particular side when they talk that way. Well, you know, those... those that party and those people, you know, that's why they are the way they are. You can say, no, you know what? You're suffering from a cognitive bias. You, you can kind of call them out. You're suffering from a cognitive bias. I, on the other hand, am, am emotionally evolved and intelligent, and I'm empathetic, and I'm curious, and I'm mature, and I heard this great, wonderful speaker preach this wonderful sermon and he taught me about this thing called fundamental attribution error, and I don't have any cognitive biases. See, when we begin to carry somebody else's burden, and we talked about this in, in Galatians chapter 6, when we, when we choose to carry somebody else's burden, and it's a choice to do that, you know what we do? We listen, and we learn, and we lean in, and we choose to carry someone's burden, and when we do, what divides us begins to diminish, and what unites us begins to surface. We fear less. We understand more, and as we will discover today, this is how the church was started, and this is how the world was changed. This is a, today's lesson, uh, today's message is a bit of a history lesson. Uh, I hope it's interesting for you. Now, here at Cross Lane, we don't talk about politics very much. In fact, um, we almost never talk about politics. Some People really don't like it that I am the way I am in this particular area, um, but I just, I don't do that. And some, some of you grew up in churches where they talked about politics all the time. Now, here's the problem. I have a sneaking suspicion that if I could have been in the church that you grew up in that talked about politics all the time, they talked about it from one side, right? And they just, they hammered that one side is all they did. Well, that's not any good either. See, what happens is churches get known for being super liberal or super conservative, and it is not my goal that we would be any of that. I, I want us to be on the side of Jesus. I don't want us to be known as being on one political side or the other. I want us to walk out of here and say, you know, like we talked about last week, run it through the filter, run it through the grid. You know, I'm a Jesus follower. The law of Christ informs my conscience, wisdom and knowledge, and that's going to basically tell me what I'm going to do politically. And as we said last week, we're not always going to agree on what we think and what we feel politically. But the law of Christ and trying to figure out what it is that Christ calls me to do and what he wants and me interpret all that, okay, then that's going to be, that's an on me thing. And so in this season where everything going on in our nation and everything we see on television and all the stuff we've experienced in recent months, we decided to talk about this thing and call it, you know, it's, it's, it's called talking points. And, and what we've been saying is that this is an issue that Christians have got to wrestle to the ground. Uh, it, it's not the issue of which political party am I going to be affiliated with. 
But the issue that every single Jesus follower has got to wrestle to the ground is this, am I going to put my Jesus filter, my faith filter, in front of my political filter? Is that going to be the thing that I lead with, is, is Jesus and faith? And here's what I'm telling you. This is very difficult to do. It's very difficult. In fact, it's so difficult to do. I'm not sure some of you have done it, and I'm not sure some of you can do it. I'm not sure I've done it, and I'm not sure I can do it all the time. It's really hard to do. Here's why it's hard to do. Some of you think you've done it, and you haven't done it. You have not put your faith filter in front of your Jesus filter. And see, that's why it's so hard, because we think we have. As I'm talking about this, you're like, Brett, talk to somebody else, because I got this figured out. No, I don't, I mean, I'm the one preaching this, and I'm not sure I've got all this figured out. But if you're a Jesus follower, you have to put your faith filter ahead of your political filter, which means you will be a Christ follower first, and then a Democrat, Republican, or liberal, or Whig, or whatever else you're going to be second to that. Here's what I'm trying to convince you of today, that when we do put our faith filter ahead of our political filter, when we do that, things change in society. We do the world a huge disservice when we try to wrap our political ideologies with the teaching of Jesus, and it happens all the time. We're not doing the world any favors when we do it like that. Now, what I'm about to say is really important. Jesus did not come to be a footnote to some political platform, and that's often what, where he, what he's reduced to. He didn't come to support some existing structure. That's not why Jesus came. We quoted Dr. Tony Evans last week who said Jesus didn't come to take sides. Jesus came to take over. I really think that's true. Jesus came to replace what was in place. He came to change it. He came and he saw the status quo and he said, no, no, no. This, this, this system's broken. This doesn't work. I'm going to bring something new and different. And when we edit and when we filter Jesus to fit some party or some platform, we rob not only our communities and not only our nation, we, we rob the world, really, of something better. We cannot be, first and foremost, party people. We have to be kingdom people who use our influence to influence our parties, if that's possible. And when we are forced to choose between the lesser of two evils, you still have to call out the evil. If you see something on your political side that's not right, and you see something in your political party, and you think to yourself, you know what, that's wrong. That, that does not line up with what, how I see the world and how I think Jesus sees the world. It becomes incumbent upon you to say, no, no, that's not right. See, I know people that if it's in their political party's spectrum, then it's all good. But when you're a Jesus follower, you're calling out the stuff that isn't right. And I'm not pointing at one side or the other in any of this stuff. I'm talking to all of us about all the political stuff. There are going to be times we're going to see things that don't line up with Jesus. And when we see that, it falls to us to say, no, that's got to change. I'm not, I can't support that. And you, you, you might be listening to me and you're thinking to yourself, Brett, is this real? Is it, is, I mean, really, is it really that big of a deal? Yes. This is a really big deal. Early Christians lost their lives over this kind of stuff. And because of this, it reshaped the world. So they refused unconditional loyalty to the emperor, even the good emperors. They didn't just give unconditional loyalty to those guys. 
And in so doing, they moved the moral and ethical needle on what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. And do you know how they did it? They did it through culturally disruptive unity. That's how they did it. In a world that was organized uh, around and exalted um, citizenship and wealth and, and money and power where people were able to purchase their way up the social ladder and you, you could buy power if you had enough money, where people purchased their way uh, into the, the communities and the things that they wanted to be a part of, these early Christians stood in opposition to all of that and it was disturbing and it was unsettling and it was actually dangerous to the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire knew it. So much so that the Roman Empire decided to impose sanctions on Christians and force Christians to declare their allegiance to Caesar. They realized that this was a threat, and here's why. Um, there, there's no way to strongly, um, to state strongly enough the emotion that would have been attached to this for first and second century Christians uh, about the way they felt, but classes of people whose social circles rarely overlapped, did so in the church. I mean, there were people that, you know, their, their circles would never overlap, and, and if so, it was done in a forced way, it would have been in some strange way, but, but people whose social circles rarely overlapped came together voluntarily and regularly and worshiped together a crucified God. And the people of the empire the Roman Empire just could not understand. They were baffled by it. They couldn't figure it out. Why would people ignore the social structures? Why would people ignore well-defined and separated social norms? Why would people ignore all that to come together to worship this crucified God? It made no sense to them. They would overcome prejudices. They would overcome racism. They would overcome class distinction. Why would they come together and ignore all of that stuff just so they could worship, worship this crucified God that they talked about? Because the message of the gospel was clear and the message of Jesus was clear. I've come to establish a new kingdom for everybody and everybody is invited to participate in it and it is going to be a disruptive kingdom. And today we just can't imagine how countercultural and how different, how disruptive and how dangerous Paul's words were um, when we read his words. And, you know, we read them and we're like, well, duh, yeah, I mean, of course, whatever, Paul, you know, yeah, all right. I'm going to look at a passage this morning. We're going to look at it together. And, and I, I bet you, you've read this passage before in your life, and I'll bet you that it didn't stop you in your tracks. I'll bet you as you read it, you just kind of read through it and you're like, okay, yeah, sure, okay, yeah. But you did that because you live in this century. Had you lived in the first century, you would have read that and gone, whoa, are you kidding me? I mean, that's countercultural. Because what's self-evident to us is not, was not self-evident to them. But because of the power of the message of Jesus and the power of the message of the cross, what was once disgusting and what was once... Um, very non-self-evident to them because of Christianity has become very self-evident to us. And, and now it's, well, yeah, duh, of course we would believe that, but they didn't believe that in the first century. This was showstopper kind of stuff. Paul writes this to the, the Christians in Galatia, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. It starts off, there is neither Jew 
nor Gentile. And they're thinking, okay, hold on, Paul. We got to share Yahweh with these people? We got to share our Yahweh with these Gentiles, these stinky, we don't like them. They're weird. I have to invite these Gentiles now into my home and get Gentile cooties, and that's kind of how they looked at it. I, I don't want them coming into my house, Paul. We, we, we don't like them. We don't want to be around them. The Gentiles are thinking, wait a minute, you're expecting us to hang out with people who won't even let our daughters date their sons. You expect us to hang out with these people who eat weird things and have these weird philosophies and these weird practices. I mean, now we're supposed to be friends. And Paul says, no, no, no. Those days are over. It's, it's not going to be like that anymore. No, no, they can't possibly over. They eat weird stuff. They, they dress weird, Paul. They're strange. And Paul says, no, those days are over. There's a new king. There's a new kingdom. And what, what has been a source of conflict in the past is not going to be a source of conflict anymore. All that tension has gone away because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all find salvation the same way through Jesus. So all that stuff's going to go away. And what used to divide you now has the potential to unite you. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. And this next one, we're, we hear it and we're like, duh, no kidding, Brett. Like, yeah, but I'm just telling you, this one was very disruptive to the, to the economy and it was disruptive to everything they knew. It was not self-evident in the first century. The verse goes on in verse 28, neither slave nor free. And the slaves are thinking to themselves, wait a minute, you're telling me that God views me in the same light, with the same esteem, and the same dignity as he views my master? And the master's thinking to himself, wait a minute, you're telling me that I'm on the same footing with Jesus as one of my slaves? Paul, are you serious? You can't be serious. That, that God sees him the same way he sees me? Paul, everybody knows that some are born to be slaves and some are born to rule over slaves. Everybody knows that. It's just common sense. It's the way the world works. It's the way the world's always worked. Some are born slaves. Some are born to have slaves. It's just the way it is, Paul. You can't go changing stuff like that. Now you're telling me that there's this new system and we're not going to have rich and poor and we're not going to have masters and slaves and citizens and non-citizens. Now everybody can just all come together and we can sing kumbaya and, and it's just we're all equal? What kind of kingdom is that? Seeds of revolution had been sown. And those... Seeds were sown by Paul's words, and those seeds were sown by, by Jesus and his words and actions. Then it gets worse. Paul goes on. Nor is there male and female. Now, here's something that we just simply cannot get our heads around. Okay, we, we have a hard time understanding this. Slavery in the ancient world wasn't like slavery uh, today. And, it, and, and the things that drove um, slavery in the, in the early uh, history of, of America that slavery was driven mainly by racism and the color of skin. But in the ancient world, that's not what drove slavery. In the ancient world, everybody was a potential slave. You would have been a potential slave. I mean, you miss a house payment, 
They come not only for your house, they come to make a slave out of your son. They're going to take a son into slavery because you owed on your house and you didn't pay. You miss a horse payment, they come not only for the horse, they come for your daughter and they put her into slavery. And if you want her back, you're going to have to pay to get her out of slavery. That's how slavery worked. That's how you could wake up one day and all of a sudden you belong to somebody else. Just about everybody was somebody else's potential slave. And in that kind of culture, the dignity of women drops completely off the table. They have no rights. They have no esteem. They're not dignified. They're not looked at the same way. If you can do that to somebody, then the value of women in that culture was not very much at all. Women would have had no standing, no dignity. Just about anybody could be a potential slave, and it really hurt women. And so Paul comes along and he says, you know what, in this new kingdom, there's a new value system, there's a new king. Men and women have the same dignity. They have the same standing. They are alike. They should be treated the same. Later in the book of 1 Peter, Peter is going to say this, Husbands, be careful how you treat your wives because they are joint heirs with you in the kingdom of God. In other words, you have the same master. You are accountable to the same God. How you treat your heavenly father's daughter. See, I, I try to teach people when, we, when, when they're getting married. Um, in heaven, you're not going to be husband and wife. I mean, you will be, but not first. That's not the first distinction for you. In heaven, you are brother and sister in Christ. And one of the great challenges for us with our spouses is do we treat our Husbands and our wives like brothers and sisters in Christ. See, I'm looking at some of you women who are my sisters in Jesus, and, and here's what I can tell you. I don't always, I would never talk to you the way I have at times been caught talking to Dee Dee, right? Because she's my spouse, and I get used to her being there, and I just think, well, she can handle it. And I've talked to her at times that I would, and so you, you get caught, and you're like, wait a minute. She's my sister in Christ first. I need to talk to her like a sister in Christ, not like a wife. See, when you come to Jesus, everything changes. Your dignity goes up. The way you get treated changes. You're, You're on equal footing with anybody else. And Peter said, listen, she's your wife, yes, but she is a daughter of God, and you need to treat her as such. I'll say this, I've heard other preachers say this, and I just, I'm going to just piggyback on what they've said. I don't understand why every woman wouldn't at least consider following Jesus. For, for everything that Jesus has done for the sake of women and the status that women enjoy today, we, have, we, we, we can thank Jesus for the, the great advances that we have been able to make for women in our culture. Because he's the one that kicked all this off. Because I can promise you, in first century Palestine, nobody looked at women like this. And then Jesus comes along and it all starts, Jesus starts talking to women in public? That, that was not done. He, 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 he treats them well. He's kind to them. He's friends with them publicly. He doesn't treat them like property. And, you know, if, if you're a, like a feminist type woman, you're really into all that stuff, you, you might think to yourself, well, Jesus is at the opposite end of what I'm after. No, Jesus is on the forefront of what you're after. Jesus was the first feminist. He championed women. Paul comes along and he champions women. It, it seems like common sense to us, but it was not common sense to them. 
Back in the first century Palestine, it wasn't like that. Let's finish up the verse. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What? I'm one with women? And women are one with slaves? And slaves are now one with their masters? Paul, have you lost your mind? Paul says, no, I haven't lost my mind. This is a new kingdom. There's no distinction. It's equal value. It's equal dignity. This was very disruptive. And if this caught on, this had the potential to unravel the Roman Empire. And it did. And Jesus looked into the future and he said this. This is Luke chapter 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. In other words, eyes are being opened. And people are beginning to see themselves and others in a different way. This is a paradigm shift. This is an upside down kingdom that we're talking about. And Jesus had introduced into the world something that we would be invited to participate in, something that we would be invited. Even more importantly, we are stewards of this kingdom now. We are the ones who are given charge over it and told to, you know, you, you handle this and you do it the way I want you to do it. And so how we represent this to our communities and to our neighborhoods and our nation and our world is extremely important for those of us who call ourselves Christians. And that's why it would be foolish Foolish for us to allow ourselves to become divided over something like politics because one day your political party may be over. 20 years from now, who knows what the political parties are going to be? They've changed from the last 20 years. Whatever your political party is today, it hasn't always been that. It's had other values, it's had other things, and it's morphed and changed over time, and it will again. And, and as we talked about last week, there were political parties that got started that aren't even in existence today. How in the world would we allow something so temporal as a political party to get in the way of our eternal bond in Jesus and the unity that we are expected to have, believer to believer? 45 years after Paul is executed in Rome, he is beheaded. 45 years after uh, Peter is executed for his faith, and we are told that they, they crucified Peter upside down. 45 years have gone by, and we have lost our top two guns in Christianity. And you would be very tempted to think to yourself, once we lose Peter and Paul, you would be very tempted to think to yourself, oh no, the two big guns, our superheroes of the faith have been taken from us. That's going to be it for Christianity. Rome won. No, Rome didn't win. Christianity just kept on spreading and kept on spreading, and they could not stop it. 45 years after Paul is executed in Nero's Rome, Pliny the Younger, who was the governor of a region that is basically modern-day Turkey, he, is, he gets this note from the, the uh, ruler of the time. It was a guy named Trajan. Trajan has sent this thing out um, and he, he wants the church to be put down. He wants this movement called Christianity to be stopped. And he has sent out this edict that declares that Christianity as a movement has to be stopped. The, the, and he said, the gods are angry. You see, the edges of the Roman Empire were beginning to fray a little bit and things were starting to fall apart and they were trying to fix a blame on somebody and they were trying to figure out what, what's wrong. Why are, why is, what's going on with the empire? It's not as strong as it used to be. The gods are angry, somebody said. 
The gods are angry that they're not being sacrificed to the way they're used to, and the Christians are the ones responsible. Must be all these Christians. So the emperor makes a decree that Christians are to be rounded up and they're to be forced to sacrifice to the emperor and proclaim their allegiance to the emperor, and they would have to acknowledge that the emperor was the ultimate lord. So Pliny the Younger says, well, you know, I have to do what the, what the emperor says, but I'm not even sure why we're doing this. I haven't noticed any disturbance among the Christians. I mean, they seem to be just fine. So he writes a letter to Emperor Trajan, and, and he's going to say, what should I do with these Christians once I get them rounded up? But before he sends this letter, he starts this investigation, and he starts looking into the Christians. And he just wants to find out about them because he, 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 what he's being told from his boss doesn't jive with what he sees in his community. And so he's, he's going to do a little investigation. He wanted to educate himself about what made all these Christians so dangerous. And he incorporated his findings into a letter to Emperor Trajan, and we actually, the letter survived antiquity. We have the letter. And here is what Pliny discovered about the Christian community 45 years after Paul and Peter have been executed. Here's what the letter says. The sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn. So they met on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Sunday was a work day for them. There was no, really no such thing as a weekend for them. So they would meet before dawn to celebrate the worship and worship their risen Savior. And they would do this on Sunday morning and then they would go to work. <laughs> I just have a question for you. If I were to change the rules of the game and tell you that we're going to start having church at 5.30 on Monday morning, how would that go with you? Right? We're going to get up and go to church on 5, 5.30 on Monday morning, and then we're going to go to work that day. You would, I doubt as many of you would be here on that as there are today. These are our people. This is how committed they were. This is how they changed the world. And they would come together before dawn, and then Pliny says, we found out they sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God. So the next time you're singing, I just want you to think about these early Christians that are getting up early in the morning. They're persecuted. Their life is at stake. They're going to this place to meet together under threat of persecution, and they're singing. And they're not singing because they have to. They're singing because God has changed their life through Jesus. These are our people. 2,000 years ago, they changed everything. They're the ones that took the Jesus movement to the next generation after Peter and Paul. They gathered and sang. And the reason they would sing is because most people in that time couldn't read. And even if they could read, they had nothing to read. If they were lucky, they had a little fragment of some letter that had been written, but the odds of that are, are next to nothing. I mean, the, the, the chances that they would have had any religious material to read to, to themselves or to their friends, it's almost non-existent. So um, in, in an effort to, that's how they would, would learn their, their theology was through chants and, and poems and songs. So they would sing. 
Pliny goes on. They sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath. And you go, oh, this is where it's going to get dangerous. They bind themselves by oath. I'm sure it has something to do with, with undermining the empire. It must have something to do with an insurrection. It's dangerous when they start taking an oath. No, he says they sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust. In other words, they promised that they would not defraud other people. They promised that they would be honest. They met together and they promised that they would be good to their spouse. They met together and promised, you know what, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to represent Jesus. Those are the promises that when they came together, they were making to one another. They were vowing things to one another. We're going to be good citizens. We're going to be good people. We're, we're not going to be jerks. We're not going to respond hatefully when people respond hateful to us. And I think Pliny's learning all this and he's thinking to himself, these people are dangerous? We can't have people like this? Are you kidding me? Somebody comes along and says, the Christians are dangerous. And Pliny's like, I don't get it. I think it's possible that when Pliny the Younger heard back from his investigators about everything that, that was going on with the Christians, you know, he's thinking to himself, well, no wonder I like them so much. I mean, if they, they don't give us any trouble. There's nothing going on. They don't, there's no problem with them. And I'm supposed to arrest these people? Here's what's amazing, and it's kind of, again, it's kind of a, a dust statement for us, but in the pagan religions, there was no morality and there was no ethics attached to pagan worship. What I mean by that is, you know, they had civil law to keep people in order but when it came to the gods, the gods didn't care how you treated your, your family. The gods didn't care how you treated other people. They didn't care how you treated your wife. The gods didn't care about any of that stuff. Gods didn't care whether you defrauded somebody or stole things from somebody else. The gods didn't care about any of that stuff. What the gods wanted was give me a blood sacrifice. In their mind, the gods wanted a grain offering. That's what they wanted. And all of a sudden, here's this cult, and somehow in their worship of God, there is this moral component that starts to show up. And they feel accountable to God for the way they treat each other and the way they treat their spouses. They feel accountable to God for the way they treat their community. Imagine what would happen in our community, in our country, if every week just the Christians who gathered together, they made a vow to each other that said, you know what, I promise you that I'm going to do my best to treat my spouse as well as they can be treated this week. I promise you that I'm going to go to work today and I'm going to work hard. I promise you that when I promise someone something, I'm going to carry through. I'm not going to renege. And I promise you that when people confront me hatefully, I'm going to respond with love. I promise you. And they were making these promises to one another. Pliny goes on in his letter, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. In other words, if somebody's counting on me, they can count on me. <laughs> and Pliny the Younger finds all this out from his investigators, and he's like, that's it? That's it? Really? And the guy goes, yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's pretty much all we could find out. I mean, we, we rounded up some Christians, and we tortured them, and we, we infiltrated their camp with some people that acted like they were Christians and went in and we got in among them and kind of watched them and figured out what they're doing and, and that's pretty much what we found out. 
And Pliny's thinking to himself, this is the group that has angered the gods? Are you kidding me? This is the group we're supposed to round up and torture, and this is the group we're supposed to make bend a knee to the emperor? This is the group that's causing all the trouble? It made no sense. This was so countercultural in a culture where they, they worshipped strength and they worshipped warfare. They worshipped things like conquest and victory. The ruling class found this pathetic. If you were somebody that espoused things like, like humility and forgiveness and love of your enemies, the ruling class thought you were pathetic. Are you kidding me? Why would we want to have anything to do with you? They're worshiping a crucified rabbi. I mean, if you got crucified, there was a reason you got crucified, and it wasn't good, and it wasn't anybody. I didn't want to associate with anybody that was crucified. That's the way they thought. They worship this crucified rabbi. What is with them? And as far as they were concerned, the whole thing was just appalling. You know, a lot of people... When, they, when Jesus comes onto the scene and these Christians start coming about, they just looked at the whole thing as it was just appalling. But many found this upside-down kingdom of Jesus appealing. Christians refused to abandon the sick because they no longer feared death. They didn't abandon babies because everyone was made in the image of God. Not only did they not expose babies like we talked about last week, take them out and, and leave them and, and let the, the fates decide what happened to them, they would go out into the fields and they would bring them into their homes and they would raise them on their meager means. And, and you start asking yourself, you know, who are these people? They extended dignity to their slaves. And you're like, well, Brett, why were they even holding slaves? You have to understand this was a different culture. It was self-evident to them that you would just have slaves, right? Like we, we've, we talked about this last week. Knowledge has been passed down over centuries, and we're wiser, and we know more now. But in their, in their first century way of thinking, it was just normal that certain people would have slaves. But now they're starting to think to themselves, well, we at least need to extend dignity to them. We need to treat them better. We need to take better care of them. And, and people on the outside are thinking to themselves, who are these people? And the answer to that is, there are people. Author uh, Jordan Peterson says it like this, Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossible. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master and commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. The implicit transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds. The kingdom of God, as described by Jesus, struck the ancients as appalling and eventually as appealing, and in time it became contagious like an airborne disease. Does that sound familiar? And against all odds... This Nazarene sect, as it, would be, as it was thought of back in the day, they looked at it as a cult. They worshipped a crucified rabbi. They had no military, no territory, no authority, no political clout, no money. And their message was built around these two 
pathetic ideas that you would love your enemy and you would love each other, it not only survived, it thrived, and it changed Western civilization forever. And we, every single one of us who are Jesus followers in this room, is a part of that movement. And we dare not be divided over party lines knowing that one day the parties are going to be over. And if those who came before us, who were so different from us, in a world that we can't even begin to imagine and certainly can't imagine living in, if somehow they were able to find common ground at the foot of the cross, we have no excuse. Their cultural disruptive unity shocked the world. And eventually the message of Jesus would change the world. So how about we just do that? How about we just decide that we're going to be on the side of Jesus and our culturally disruptive unity. Let's let that change the world around us. Because here's what I can tell you. We run the risk of being divided politically over issues that we are passionate about. And if we put our political filter ahead of our Jesus filter, that is exactly what will happen. We will, we will take shots at one another and we will look askance at one another because I can't believe they hold that view. But when we put the Jesus filter first, now you're my brother. Now you're my sister. And it is incumbent upon me to embrace you because that's how I see you first. And, I, and I'm going to try to understand you and understand where you're coming from on your political issues. It, it may be impossible for you to understand how a Jesus follower could possibly have a different take than you on a political issue. You, you, may, you may hear some Christian talk. You might even hear me talk some time ago. I don't understand how he can believe that. I don't know what drives that. I don't know why he thinks that. You, you may never get to that place. You might think to yourself, you know what, you call yourself a Christian and you're still for that? You call yourself a Christian and you're still against that? How can that be? You may, not, you may never understand why other Christians don't see political and social issues the way you do. So when you go to vote, you need to vote your law of Christ informed conscience. But in the meantime, let's do what the early church did. Let's carry one another's burdens. Let's make sure that Jesus comes first. Because when you carry my burdens, here's what happens. You begin to understand where I stand, and that helps you understand where I'm sitting and where I'm seeing the world from and why I have the views I have. And when you carry my burdens, I begin to see where you stand, and I begin to see why you sit where you sit and why you hold the opinions you have. When we carry one another's burdens, we begin to see each other in a different light. And we may never agree politically, but we can love unconditionally. Because we gain a better understanding of each other when we do that. And even if we never understand each other fully, we can at least carry each other's burdens. And do you know what we do? We do the most important thing in life. We fulfill the law of Christ. That's what we do. 
You do not have to understand me to agree with me or to unconditionally love me, and I do not have to understand you to agree with you and unconditionally love you. It it, it doesn't have to be that way. We can disagree politically, we can love unconditionally, and we can pray for unity. So let's do this. This is a unique opportunity for us to demonstrate to anybody that's watching what Jesus really is about. And if we could show that to our nation that we follow a king, that we've bought into this upside-down kingdom of unconditional love. Let's listen. Let's learn. Let's love each other, and together we will make our towns and our community and our city and our nation and maybe even our world a better place. And that is not naive. I know it's really easy to hear me talk, and you think, Brett, you... You just sound so naive. No, it's not naive because once upon a time, a handful of Jesus followers who had nothing multiplied to a point that the Roman Empire that tried to put them down as a movement eventually embraced the whole thing. And if we can get this right, we can change some things for some people. And if enough Christians could get this right nationwide, a world would change. So let's do that. Let's let's do this. Let's don't let ourselves be divided. There's too much at stake, and the world needs us too much to get this right. So let's get it right. Let me pray for you. Father, So much political rhetoric in the world today, and there's so much hate and vitriol, and God, just people aren't good to each other. And yet you call us into this upside-down kingdom where everybody's the same, and it doesn't matter your social class or how much money you got or what color you are or any of that stuff. Because we're all one, because we're all brothers and sisters because we're all daughters and sons of God. And so, Father, would we be able to do what seems impossible, and that is to get over our biases and put Jesus first and let that filter everything else. And God, I think if we could just do that, you would sit back with a smile on your face and say, that is a group of people that gets it. They understand. That's why I came. So, Father, for those of us who hold these these prides and prejudices and these opinions so strongly, forgive us for that. Help us to find the humility that it takes to reach out to somebody else that's different from us and love them unconditionally. Father, you taught us how. We want to be like you. We need your help. So we pray to that end. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.